who is in control of this world? I suspect that if you asked most people that question, they couldn't really give you an answer. When we look around at the violence and bloodshed that we see in so many parts of our world, when we see breakdown in society, when we hear of modern-day slavery and sex trafficking, we don't feel that world leaders are really in control. Some are trying their best and are helping in certain situations. But as to the question of whether there's anyone in ultimate control, most people would probably say they weren't too sure that anyone was. Now, of course, if we're Christians, we'd want to answer the question, who's in control of this world, by saying God is. But the problem with that is that often this world seems rather out of control. And that makes many people ask, Well, how come, if God's in control, the world's in such a mess? And we get the standard lines about God, that if he's a God of love, how come he allows so much suffering? And if he's so powerful, why doesn't he stop things from going so badly wrong? The rather depressing thing, though, is that if there is actually no one in control of this world, then that means that it has all come about by chance, There's no real purpose to our lives, and after we die, that's it. And so many people find themselves wanting to believe that there is a God in charge of this world who will one day take us to a place of perfection called heaven, but they want to qualify his authority in the present. There are maybe certain things about him that they don't like quite so much or find hard to accept, and so they try to take away from his sovereignty, and his complete control. You see, the basic problem with there being a God who is all-powerful and all-knowing, who has made us and who sustains this world, is that he has the right to do whatever he wants. And there's something in us as human beings that doesn't like that. If we did nothing to create ourselves, if we were not able to give ourselves life, if we are unable to create something out of nothing, then surely we don't have the right to be in control of our lives and this world. And yet, most of us want at least some of the power. Imagine that pretty much everyone here has a mobile phone. Some of you may not use it all that often, whereas some of you may look at it a hundred or... I read some statistic about people... We're looking at our phones 150 times a day or whatever. Um, But essentially, however much or little you use it, your phone has certain information in it that you have put into it. You've put contacts into your phone. And it effectively tells you, tells, does what you tell it to do. So when you text someone and press send, the text goes, hopefully. But how would you feel if your phone started sending texts to different people in your list of contacts, making up its own texts and sending them? Well, for a start, you'd feel pretty annoyed because you're in charge of your phone. It's not in charge of you. And it wouldn't have the numbers it does if you hadn't put them there. And you can imagine the chaos that would be caused if that comment that you made about somebody you didn't intend them ever to hear just got sent to them. Or if your phone started making up lies 
and disseminating those. Now, it's a rather poor analogy, but you can see the problem that there is with a God who is sovereign. He has the right to be in control, just as much as you feel you have the right to be in control of your phone. And yet, we don't completely want that. But because of that, we cause immense problems when we rebel against him and try to take control from him. Now, the subject of God's sovereignty is a vast one. Um, And yet, perhaps surprisingly, the word sovereign and sovereignty doesn't appear all that often in the Bible. So as I said, there isn't one obvious passage to go to that uh, spells out everything we want to know about God's sovereignty. And in one sermon, I can't do justice to that this morning. So I'm just going to concentrate on two aspects of his sovereignty. And they're perhaps the aspects that cause most people most problems. Because uh, even though the word sovereignty is not used all that often in the Bible, if we're Christians, then we probably understand the idea of God being the sovereign ruler of the universe and in control of all that happens. And why we may struggle with why he allows certain things to happen in our lives or in the lives of others, there is still a measure of comfort in believing that he is in control. But perhaps where we or others struggle most is when it comes to the idea of God's sovereignty in redemption and final judgment. And those are the two things that we're going to focus on this morning. Why is it that God in his sovereignty has chosen to redeem, to save some and not others? And why does he judge those whom he has not chosen? Now, redemption isn't a word that we use a lot nowadays, but in the Bible it finds its roots way back in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. There we read about how God's special people, the Israelites, the people that he had chosen, the descendants of Abraham, were living as slaves in Egypt. They were effectively the property of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And God, through Moses, promised that he would bring them out of slavery to worship him and live for him in a wonderful new land that he was going to give them. And as I'm sure you know, that is what happened. It wasn't a rescue that the Israelites were able to bring about themselves. They were downtrodden slaves with no hope of leaving Egypt. And it took ten plagues from God, culminating in the death of the firstborn in every Egyptian household, to persuade Pharaoh to let the people go. Even as we read the book of Exodus, we see God in sovereign control. In Exodus 7 and verse 3, he says to Moses... But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to me. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So there we have God saying that it was part of his plan for Pharaoh to refuse to let the people go. But this is all to show that in the end it is even more amazing that this rescue happens. And it's to show that it was only down to God that it happened. It was to give the Israelites confidence in God as they saw him at work in Egypt in the midst of their slavery and in the midst of Pharaoh's opposition. 
Now, of course, God's redemption of his people from slavery in Egypt is a picture of a much bigger redemption, which he was going to bring about later on. The Bible tells us about a different kind of slavery that the whole human race is in, and that is slavery to sin. Slavery to running our lives our way, and not the way God wants. It doesn't always feel like slavery. In fact, some people may say that they are choosing to be free. But even if someone accepted that living to please ourselves doesn't always work out perfectly, and if you started to ask them, if you ask them to start living completely and fully the way that God says we should, thinking about him all the time, wanting to please him all the time, even if they wanted to do that, they couldn't because of the slavery to sin. It's a slavery to sin that messes up our world as people struggle for power and position and pleasure. But we are powerless to do anything ultimately about it. If we could, then we could make the world a perfect place. But we can't, and so it isn't. And so our only hope is if someone else can solve this problem for us. And that's what God has done. He has sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth to live the perfect life that we cannot live and to take the punishment that we deserve. When Jesus died on the cross, he was being punished instead of us. And that's what we're told in the verses from Ephesians chapter 1 that we read a a few moments ago. In Ephesians 1 and verse 7, Paul writes, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Jesus died to buy us back to God. And this was all God's idea. And most people... Certainly most Christians probably don't have too much of a problem with that. But the problems come when we read in verse 5 that in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And again in verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. The sovereignty of God in redemption means that he has chosen those whom he wants to redeem. And that is what the Bible clearly says. And for some Christians, and certainly for many non-Christians, that presents a problem. Christians think that it's not fair that some people don't become Christians. And it may indeed be extremely difficult to come to terms with this. Especially when we're not talking in the abstract, but actually when it comes a bit closer to home in terms of people that we know and love who as yet have made no commitment to Christ. Now, I don't want to sound insensitive in what I'm saying here, but I suggest that if you ask those non-Christians among your friends or, or family Would you really love to be a Christian, but you feel you can't because you haven't been chosen by God? I'm not sure that actually they would say, yes, that's right, that completely describes my situation. I desperately want to be a Christian, but I'm not one because God mustn't have chosen me, and and I think that's actually really unfair. If you look back at the story of Pharaoh in Exodus, we do read there that 
God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And and so he was in sovereign control. But we also read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So Pharaoh didn't feel like he was a puppet being manipulated by God. Pharaoh was opposed to God and effectively he was choosing that line. He didn't want God to be in charge. In fact, when Moses first came to him, he told Moses, I've never heard of your God. Why should I listen to you and what your God wants? And when he saw evidence of the power of this God, he didn't then think, I'd better stop trying to be in charge and submit to this God. There's a danger that we misunderstand the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in redemption. And it's as if we imagine that all the non-Christians in this world are frantically trying to become Christians but aren't able to because God won't let them. The Lord Jesus promised that he would not cast out anyone who came to him. And so instead of getting annoyed at the thought of God being in control of our salvation, we should be encouraged by that. There are two things I'd like you to go away from this morning trying to remember from what I've said. And the first one is what we've just started to think about here. It's this, that God's sovereignty in redemption gives us reason for confidence, not complaint. You see, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, telling them that God has sent his son to die for them, and that he had chosen them to be adopted into his family, he wasn't doing that to upset them. He was doing it to encourage them. For a start, we need to remember that here we have people who are probably being given a hard time by family members for following this new religion that was so at odds with the religion of Ephesus. We've got to remember that Ephesus was a a place that had the temple of Diana, one of the uh, wonders of the ancient world. Um, That was the big focus of the city. It was effectively a pagan place. And here were these people (coughs) worshipping this person that wasn't around any longer. Um, And and their beliefs were really in conflict with uh, the practice of the city. And there would have been people who would have been giving them a hard time for this. Perhaps it was open hatred. With others, maybe it was just kind of cold shouldering and excluding them from their social circles. But Paul wants to reassure them that they are not mad to be trusting in Jesus. When others are looking down on them, he wants to tell them, no, you have the best position of all. You have been chosen by God. He is the one who has brought you to himself And this is the best position to be in. And the situation for us in our society is maybe becoming a little bit similar. There may still be some residual respect for Christianity in some quarters, but it's fading fast. It's probably much more socially acceptable now not to be a Christian. And certainly there are those that feel that Christianity is manipulative and oppressive, that Christians are narrow-minded bigoted and stuck in the dark ages are we mad to believe what we do are we mad to live in line with what the bible teaches paul's clear answer is no but the fact that we believe the truth of god's word 
is evidence that God has chosen us because this is not something which is the most natural thing in the world to believe. The fact that we have been chosen by God should give us confidence to stand against the tide of secularism sweeping through our land. But even more fundamentally, the fact that we've been chosen by God should give us confidence in our salvation. Because if our salvation was down to us, if it was down to how well we had responded to God, then we'd always have room for doubt. Have I repented enough? Have I tried hard enough to follow him? But Paul wants to reassure the Christians in Ephesus that they had been chosen by God. And since he is the supreme power in the universe, that should give them confidence. Now, of course, with this, as with many other doctrines in in the Bible, we have to allow for a certain tension. The reality is that when viewed from our perspective, we move in response to Christ. We make a response to the gospel when we hear it. We move from a position of not believing and trusting in Jesus to a position where we do. And we consciously make that decision. It may be in a one-off, decisive moment, or it may be over a period of time when we realize that we have started to think differently about Jesus, and we do accept that we need his forgiveness and that we cannot be in charge of our lives. But the fact remains that we have changed our minds. It's not that we feel we've been brainwashed or manipulated into believing this. But although we are consciously doing that, what we have to accept at the same time is that God has actually been at work in us to move us to respond to him. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we, by nature, are dead in our sins. And dead people cannot bring themselves back to life. Only God can do that, and he does it by his grace. None of us deserves to be made alive. None of us deserves to be forgiven by God. We all deserve to be punished by him and separated from him forever. But the wonder of his grace is that he should choose any of us to be with him forever. And not because we are better or nicer people, but simply because he has set his love on us and has sovereignly chosen us. So God's sovereignty and redemption gives us reason for confidence, not complaint. And we ought to take from this the reassurance that God wants to give us. And we should allow ourselves to be overwhelmed by his amazing grace to us. If someone turned up at your door and said, I want to give you a million pounds, how would you react? Would you say, That's very kind, but unless you're going to do the same for everyone I know, then I'm not going to accept your offer. And if they said, well, actually, I've made the same offer to everyone you know, but only a few of them have accepted. Would you say, well, unless you make all of them accept it, I won't either, because that's not fair. I don't know you. I don't know your scruples, but I doubt that many of us would turn down an offer like that. And so we need to be careful about thinking that we should dictate to God the terms on which he can save us. God is sovereign in redemption. And ultimately, he tells us that 
to encourage us, to encourage us to keep going in the face of a world that tells us, you're mad to be doing all of this. Why don't you just forget about it? In fact, here's a few reasons why you could fall out with God over all of this. God is sovereign in redemption, but he's also sovereign in judgment. And that's the second thing that we're going to look at uh, briefly in, in a few minutes. Again, there are many parts of the Bible that talk about God's judgment, but I just want to take you to one of them. It's only one verse, but you might want to turn back um, in the Old Testament to Ecclesiastes, uh, to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, <clears throat> Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse uh, 14. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 12 and 14 says this, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. If you're familiar at all with the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll know it doesn't sound very optimistic. The writer keeps saying, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Because as he looks around at the world, he struggles to make any ultimate sense of it. Sometimes it seems that people are rewarded for doing the wise thing. Then there are other times when it doesn't seem to matter whether you were wise or foolish. And and in the end, everyone dies. And who knows what happens after that? But the very last verse of the book suggests that this life is not all meaningless. Because God sees and knows everything that we do. And in the end, he will judge us for that. Now again, that idea, God will judge us, starts to make some people feel a little uneasy. Because we want to know on what basis he'll do it. And many don't like the idea of God judging some people and declaring that they have to spend forever cast out of his presence in a place of torment away from God. But just because we don't like the sound of that, it doesn't mean that it can't be true. Time and again in his teaching, Jesus talks about hell. And if hell doesn't exist, then Jesus is a liar and we cannot trust anything, he said. Why trust him about salvation and heaven? And yet there is nothing irrational about God sending people to hell. If human beings have messed up the perfect world that God made in the beginning, then why would we not mess up another perfect world? And surely it makes no sense for people who've not wanted God to rule over them in this world to turn around after they die and say, oh, well, now I'd like to be part of your kingdom. The essence of human sin is that we want to run our lives and we don't want God to tell us what we should and shouldn't do. We'd like to have the final say. So often God is characterized as a killjoy, isn't he? It's as if he wants to stop us all doing the things that we most would like to do. The things that will give us most fun and and enjoyment. Well, God's saying, well, okay. If you think I'm only going to spoil things for you, then I won't interfere after you die. I'll do exactly what you want and leave you completely in control along with everyone else who doesn't want me and who wants to be completely in control. Often one of the things that people forget when they start to object to the idea of God judging us is that 
If there is no final judgment, then that does make this life meaningless. In fact, we should probably try to get away with as much as possible if there's going to be no judgment in the end. And so the second thing I want you to remember is that God's sovereignty in judgment means that this life is not meaningless. That's exactly what the writer of Ecclesiastes was saying at the end of his book. God sees and will judge us for how we've lived. And in reality, that is what most people want, at least to some degree. Hitler was responsible for some of the worst atrocities in history. And while he didn't live to be an old man, at the same time, he wasn't really brought to justice. He killed himself and avoided any trial or further punishment. Do you think it would be a good thing for all the deaths that he had caused just to be overlooked? Do you think that Jimmy Savile's victims are glad that he died before all the abuse that he was responsible for was uncovered? Those who have beheaded Christians in the Middle East may or may not be brought to justice in this life, but if they aren't, does that not really matter? We don't like the idea of people being allowed to get away with doing dreadful things. And so there is surely some comfort in the assurance that everyone will be judged in the end. The problem, though, that some people have with final judgment is that they want to be the judge. So they want to decide that there are certain things that are really bad and deserve to be punished. So we can all agree on the examples that I've just cited. But where do you draw the line? Because people want to draw a line and say, okay, people below that line definitely should be judged. But if you ask people to draw the line and put themselves above or below it, How many people do you think would put themselves below the line and say, yeah, what I've done is so bad that I do deserve to be judged and punished by God for it? I doubt you'd find very many. And that line would be in all sorts of different places depending on who the person was and what they had done or what others had done in relation to them. What God says is every human being deserves to be punished Because I've given you a beautiful world to live in. All I wanted was for you to enjoy me, to obey me perfectly, and accept that I knew how best to run this world. But but you didn't do that. No one has done that. No one obeys God perfectly. And because of that, we deserve to be punished. Now, some people have undoubtedly done much worse things than others. But if the standard is perfection, then none of us comes close. The amazing thing, though, about God's judgment is that he has allowed that judgment to fall already on Jesus, the only perfect man who ever lived, and the only person who did not deserve to be punished by God. And yet he did that so that his demand for justice could be satisfied. God couldn't say that nothing we've done really matters, and so we'd all go to heaven regardless. But equally, he didn't want to send us all to hell. And so he punished Jesus instead of us. And that means that when God judges this world, he will judge each of us. He will reveal what we have done. But instead of condemning us and sending us to hell, he will accept that the punishment has been taken by Jesus if we are trusting in him. 
If we've accepted the rescue option that God has made available, then he will make us perfect and allow us to share in the wonderful new world that he's creating. And the Bible also seems to make clear that God will reward us for what we have done for him in this life. So that the good that we have done does count for something. It doesn't save us. It doesn't earn us our way into heaven. But it doesn't go unnoticed. It gives meaning to our lives in this world. So the reassurance that we have from God's sovereignty and final judgment is that life here is not meaningless. It matters whether we've responded to Christ now. It matters whether we have lived for him on this earth. The book of Revelation is full of all sorts of imagery, some of it easier to grasp than others. But there's one image that's not hard to grasp, and that is the image of God seated on a throne. It's a reminder to us that one day, everyone will clearly see that the Lord God reigns. At the moment, people look at this world, which God allows at times to reap the consequences of our rebellion against him, and they wonder whether anyone's in control. But one day, they will be in no doubt that there is a sovereign ruler. And if we've read and accepted what we read in the Bible, then that day should come as no surprise to us. Because we believe even now that God is sovereign. And we will rejoice to see that revealed to the whole world. So let's not be those who try to argue against the sovereignty of God. Let's not be those who try to qualify what God says about himself or take issue with his right to order this world and the next in the way that he pleases. Instead, may he give us his grace to be humble before him. Even if we cannot always fully understand his ways and his purposes. And and let's face it, if we could, if there was no mystery in God, if we understood everything about what he does and why he does it, then guess what? We'd be God. And we're not if there was nothing that we couldn't get our heads around, then God would just be as tiny as we are. And what kind of a God is that? That's not the God that we want to serve and worship, is it? We want a God who is the sovereign ruler of this universe. And the amazing thing is that if we actually get these ideas firmly in our heads They are a real encouragement to us. They do give us confidence. In a world where people say, oh, forget about all that Christian stuff. I'm not sure I have much time for your God. He assures us that he is in control. He assures us that our salvation is not down to us and how good we can be or even how much we can do for him. It's all down to his loving choice of us. And if we have understood that, then we are chosen by him. We are truly loved by him. We have a a status that is much greater than any status that this world can ever give us. And we have a great hope in the light of what is to come. And on that final day, when we come face to face with him, 
We'll be overwhelmed by his mercy to us in saving us when we know we deserve to be punished. We'll also see the rightness of his judging certain people who have turned their backs on him. But also in the light of that, we should have confidence to come to him, not just for ourselves, but for those around us, for this world around us, where there are still people whom God has chosen. We're told in the Bible that the reason that God delays in returning is so that more will come to him. And so rather than us despairing and thinking, is anybody else ever going to come to Christ? Is anyone in my family that I'm really concerned about, are they ever going to come to him? We come to him in prayer, humbly asking that in his sovereign grace and mercy, he will draw them to himself. But it is only God that can do that. But that makes him the great God that he is. And that's why the sovereignty of God should motivate us as we live for him this week and whatever little things that you have to do that are annoying and you think, I wish I didn't have to do that, but actually God sees, God judges, God will remember. And with all those non-Christians that we interact with, again, God in his sovereign love and mercy can draw them to himself. So let's continue to pray for them. Let's ask him to show that mercy to more so that they can, on that final day, stand before him, not trusting in their own goodness, as is the way for any of us, but trusting in all that he has done for us in sovereignly sending his son to redeem us. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you will 